0: Welcome back to a new episode of the Oxford Policy Pod. My name is Vitor Thomas, a Master of Public Policy candidate at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. This episode was led and conceptualized by my colleague, Chirag Shah. The 27th edition of the Conference of the Parties of the UNFCCC, or COP27 for short, took place last month in Sharm El sheik uh, Egypt, involving heads of state uh, or representatives from 190 countries. To help us understand what changed after COP27, and what is next in the fight against climate change, we have Professor Thomas Hale as our guest. Professor Hale is currently a professor in public policy with a focus on global public policy here at the Blavatnik School of Government. His research explores how we can manage transnational problems effectively and fairly. He seeks to explain how political institutions evolve or not, to face the challenges raised by globalization and interdependence, with a particular emphasis on social, uh, on environmental, economic, and health issues. Professor Hale is a prolific author, having authored uh, Beyond Gridlock, Between Interests and Law, The Politics of Transnational Commercial Disputes, Transnational Climate Change and Governance, and Gridlock, Why Global Cooperation is Failing When We Need It Most. He also leads the Oxford COVID nineteen Government Response Tracker and co-leads the Net Zero Tracker. Professor Hale, welcome to the Policy Pod, and thank you so much for your participation. Thanks for having me, Vitor. So your uh, your research interests are very uh, broad, and I think extremely relevant for the world today. Could you explain a little bit more what's there in the intersection between net zero uh, and global governments?
1: Well, of course. So. The world faces a whole number of transnational challenges where we have a world of 190-something countries, many other kinds of actors, and problems that span all of them. And climate change, of course, is a case par excellence, but hardly the only one. And so my real interest is how political institutions can manage this very difficult situation. Net zero is a great example because we have to make this huge transition in every economy of the world in a few short decades. We have to do that somehow at speed and at scale. And so it's a fundamentally... You know, different global governance problem than we've encountered before, which I think is really interesting, but also a really big challenge. So that's um, been fascinating to look at.
0: And uh, in your books, you compare a little bit the, diff- the different uh, in the challenge that we face now from when the kinds of global challenges that we had in the past. Can you just uh, give us a little bit of insight on how the new problems that we're facing as a global society uh, are different from what we had before?
1: Yeah, so I think what we've seen over time is a real deepening of interdependence um, from the sort of long uh, 20th century forward. And this was not just an accident of history. This was actually an intentional choice. After World War II, countries decided to create a new multilateral system to try to Preserve the hard-won peace that had been established, and to build economic relationships that would deepen over time. And indeed, they did. And as those issues and topics became more intermeshed, something that happened in one country matters a lot to what happens in other countries. It began to also expand to new kinds of issues. For example, the environment, where it's not just that our good, good trades, we uh, goods we trade across borders go across. Um, from country to country but actually pollution. And the benefits of of different um, natural resources may go across borders as well. And so this has really opened up a whole kind of domain of policy problems that didn't really exist before. And in response, governments invented new tools to try to do that, some of which worked well. And I think we have many good examples of international treaties and international organizations that have made really positive gains. But as that then sort of cycle continued, interdependence got a lot deeper, And that became even more challenging and some of the tools that we used previously, for example, the Kyoto Protocol or other kinds of standard uh, environmental treaties, found it very hard to manage this much deeper, uh, longer term, more pervasive problem that penetrates much deeper into society, really is an all of society problem, not something that goes from country to country across borders.
0: Very interesting. And then uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the Kyoto Protocol because uh, looking back, I believe it was a great success. Let me know if you don't agree with this uh, statement. So what's, how is the challenges that we face now different from the ones that we faced um, uh, for the, the Kyoto Protocol?
1: Well, the Kyoto Protocol seemed like a great idea at the time because it was following a very standard model for how we approach global environmental issues or actually global collective action problems more broadly. It said, we have a problem. We all need to cooperate. We know this incentive to free ride, so we want to make sure people don't do that. So we're going to have the standard formula, which is a global deal, a negotiated treaty. We're going to have monitoring to see if people are keeping to that deal. and they break the rules, we're going to have sanctions. And I would say that was a great model, Except it didn't work, and it didn't work for several reasons. It didn't work because A, countries didn't actually agree to that global deal. The United States, which at the time was the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases, never signed up. So it's kind of hard to work if the biggest single part country is not part of it. Why didn't they sign up? Because countries couldn't agree on who should take responsibility. They couldn't have that kind of consensus that's needed for that model to work. Also, it didn't work because the sanctions that were supposed to come in place were not really very effective. So technically it was legally binding, but when uh, countries came up to realize that they maybe weren't going to make the commitments they had made, they just left the treaty. It's left it. So it was binding maybe in paper, but not in practice. So this is a huge uh, dilemma because it seemed like, oh, this tool we've used for these other problems is no longer going to be effective. What are we going to do? So the first thing countries did was try to do it again, (laughs) which was the 2009 Copenhagen summit, which didn't end with a successful outcome. Um, But then remarkably... And I think really unusually, countries tried a different approach. and That's what we got in the 2015 Paris Agreement, which really flips this cooperation model around. It says we're not going to try to create cooperation by getting everyone to have a global deal and to monitor what they do and have sanctions if they break the rules. Instead, we're going to create a flexible system where everyone pledges what they can do, We do have the same review process to see what people are doing, but then we iterate that over time. So the idea is to create what I've called in my work a catalytic cooperation model, which can build up cooperation over time. Will it work? That's the big question. I think it's working okay. It's not working well. And that's, um, you know, I think the reality that we're facing in Shamoshek a few weeks ago and and
0: going forward. (coughs) And and how... What was the the role of the the COPs in in this whole process? And how did we arrive in in COP27? What were the expectations? Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, this? So in this Paris model that I've been speaking about,
1: um, the idea was that countries would update their pledges on mitigation every five years. And the time that was supposed to happen for the first time was five years after 2015, 2020, got later to 2021. So COP26 last year was the kind of first chance to have this test of the ratchet mechanism. And there was a ratchet. It wasn't enough of a ratchet to put the world on track to the goals they've set for themselves, for for all of us, to limit warming to well below 2 degrees or ideally 1.5 degrees. Um, It's more of a sort of 2.7 degree trajectory if you look at the policies that are in place today and more of a 2.4 degree trajectory if you look at the pledges that are in place. So we're still way ahead of uh, beyond where we need to be. But that's in contrast to the 3.5 to 4.5 trajectory we were on before Paris. So there was a real ratchet down. It's not yet enough, but we need to invest in the ratchet going forward. Sharm el was always meant to be a sort of smaller kind of conference of the parties. This is when the countries get together to think about what they're going to, to do going forward. But because we hadn't quite ratcheted enough in, Paris, in, in um, Glasgow last year, there's a lot more expectation that countries might do so in Sharm el and instead they didn't really. There wasn't much of an increase there. So in that dimension, the conference didn't deliver a huge amount. Some people might say, "Well, it was never supposed to." That was not the. It was a five-year <laughs> plan at most, not a not a year-by-year plan. But at the same time, you might say, "Well, we're in a climate emergency. We have only eight years left in this decade to have global emissions. If we're going to have a 50-50 chance of keeping warming to one point five, so every year really counts." And so that huge level of expectation and pressure, which now is on this COP and indeed every COP is i think really
0: challenging the system overall mm-hmm. could you comment a little bit on the the actual outcomes uh of cop 27 and then for each of of these uh what's your take on this were they uh big wins uh shy wins mm. so i'd say on the first you know to mention the mitigation problem i've been speaking about
1: not much to say not much to report on the other big topic on the agenda finance again not a huge amount of change since last year um, countries, Developed countries made a pledge in 2010 to mobilize $100 billion worth of funding per year for developing countries by 2020. It's now 2022 and we're at something like $85 billion. So it's not, still unmet. The third major area um, that was interesting to see was on this uh, issue of loss and damage, which means not mitigating climate change and adapting to its impacts to building more resilience, but actually Helping people and countries and communities address the loss they already are facing from the impacts of climate change and the damage that that causes. And this has been a very contentious issue because it's is often seen through this light of uh, liability that if you have caused a problem, you need to pay the people who are harmed by it. And that's a very basic legal principle. Um, and so it's been very hard to get countries to agree on that. So that was a big breakthrough in the talks in, in el-Sheikh. There was actually an agreement to create a fund that would provide. Uh, money for losses and damages, um, and like uh, many great victories, there's a, a big asterisk on that, which is that a few key details haven't yet been agreed. For example, who will pay into this fund? Who will get money out of the fund? How much money will that be? And what channels will be used to get that money? Will it be grants or will it be kind of insurance or what will it be? So a lot still to be done, and indeed the hard politics lie in that and those detailed questions. So I would give give it a um, you know positive. Appraisal because it's making progress on a core issue and and creating a sort of at least a norm. This is now much more of a legitimate topic of discussion and there's a fund and so we should think about that. In terms of actual help for people suffering loss and damage, I think it's going to be a while before that help yields results.
0: And so it's very easy to commit to contribute with money when you don't say how much you will pay or when you do. Are you optimistic that at some point these will actually turn into um, concrete action and concrete transfers to the countries that need help in uh, either uh, transitioning to lower forms of uh, em- em- lower emission forms of energy energy generation or uh, repara- uh, mitigation for for climate change? So I think it's important to divide. There's sort of two two different kinds of
1: um, discussions around climate finance. On the one hand, there's sort of the um, negotiations in the UN process, which are about really a question of getting political will and bargains struck and building trust between countries. And that's where the $100 billion number comes from, where this new loss and damage fund is targeted to. And then there's all the climate finance that flows around the world through other channels right it's not negotiated at the cop to do that it comes from private sector it comes from the international financial institutions it comes from national policies and plans that's the biggest source actually and countries using taxing t- taxes to pay for their own climate policies that's that's the biggest single source so all of that climate finance is what actually needs to be looked at if you really want to solve the problem because that's a scale on the scale of trillions not on the scale of a few billions but getting the commitments that are made met is a key part of building the political trust, right? So that's a really important part of it as well. Um, the history, unfortunately, of the funds created through the UN process is not great if you look at them as delivery vehicles. So the adaptation fund, which is created um, to help with adaptation, uses the proceeds from the emissions trading scheme of the uh, clean development, uh, it's called the clean development mechanism from the Kyoto Protocol. That's only, I think, allocated something like $850 million in its time, which is not very much. The Green Climate Fund, which is a bigger entity doing doing both adaptation and mitigation, $10 billion in total. So these are small compared to the scale of the challenge. Um, And I think that's probably a likely trajectory for the new loss and damage fund, unfortunately. But the impact might be broader, right? It might be more indirect. So by legitimizing this idea, you maybe have an influence on other kinds of channels. For example, in courts where... um, people who have contributed a lot to climate change may find themselves on the hook for different kinds of compensation.
0: And, and how does your research uh, enter here? Why is it relevant for solving these, these issues? Uh, and how do you engage with leaders, uh, country leaders, and uh, legislative bodies, uh, international organizations?
1: So as you said before, the bigger um, vein of my research is on this massive system of cooperation we built up and how we make it work better and why it works better or worse in certain circumstances. But in the climate space, I've been particularly interested in how – in a really innovative part of it, which is how cities, businesses – investors, civil society groups, universities even, have become much more central actors in the problem of climate change. Like I was saying before, it's this kind of of all-of-society problem, so it has this now kind of of all-of-society policy response, which is quite exciting because um, it shows the capacity for innovation in global governance as well as some of the gridlock that that sometimes we we focus on more. Um, And in the climate change regime, we've seen that become a much more central part of how countries think about solving the problem. So in Paris in 2015, they created this, um, well, they called upon all these other kinds of actors to act and, and toward the goals of the Paris Agreement, and we see many of them doing that. We see a huge groundswell of action on this. Uh, you mentioned net zero before. Once net zero became... Uh, sort of embedded in the science um, sort of the early 2010s then the Paris Agreement as, as sort of a uh, phrasing, a complicated, diplomatic phrasing of a balance between sources and sinks and then really um, brought into the public domain through the IPCC's 2018 report on global warming of 1.5 degrees. Suddenly, all of these countries, but also cities, businesses, investors, said we're going to be net zero too, which is great. That's what we should all need to be getting toward if we're going to meet this goal. What's then come up is how how are these pledges actually being delivered are they serious are they credible and that's where a lot of uh, attention has been focused at cop 27 for example and making them more credible and how you account for that so my own work has been really thinking about the system around sub and non-suit actors i've been um from 2013 or so forward thinking about how we um Integrate the sort of grounds for of the bottom-up stuff with the intergovernmental process. We actually had the workshop in 2014 here in the Bobotnik School. That was the first time the UN and these different groups sat down together and thought, let's create a kind of system for tracking all this. That's now a kind of core part of the of the system. I also helped to advise uh, the UN campaign that mobilizes net zero targets from non-state actors. I'm the chair of their independent expert group that reviews are they up to standard or not. And so we're thinking a lot about the quality. Of these different kinds of pledges,
0: I want to uh, understand a little bit more what is what it's actually like for you to act. So imagine that we we're we are on the first day of the conference. What what are you doing? Where are you going? To whom are you talking? Uh, are you holding any panels? Are you facilitating any discussions or negotiation? Very uh, concretely, what were your what was your participation in the <laughs> in the conference? Well the first
1: thing you do when you wake up in the morning, it's very early because things start very early. You try to get out of your hotel, you're very sleepy, you're trying to organize your agenda for the day, you get on the bus, it takes you to the cup, and then you sit in a very, very long security line for a long time. Time. So that's what the day starts out as. Um, but it's important to understand that COP has really become uh, much more than an intergovernmental negotiation, for better or worse. So there's the you know, formal uh, UN part where the countries negotiate with other countries. Sometimes non-state actors, including NGOs or academics, sit in and observe that process, um, but they're not really the participants in that. But as I was saying before, this whole groundswell of actors are now also an official part of it. So there's a whole climate action sequence, which is happening in parallel to that, where you'll see you know, cities coming up announcing what they're doing on uh, buildings, or they see a business come up and announce what it's going to do on um, investing in climate-smart agriculture or something like that. Lots of coalitions and initiatives that are, are launched at these things and all trying to drive more action. Um, and then there's a whole kind of circus around around that. So personally, I'm, I'm doing a few things in all those different realms. Um, there was, as part of the Paris uh, Agreement, a review process um, for how countries are doing on their NDCs, which are the nationally determined contributions, the pledges they make on the Paris Agreement, and how much they, we collectively are doing as part on our goals of getting to that agreement. It's called the Global Stock Take. And so I was facilitating one of the sessions, which is actually quite innovative. It had countries, diplomats, and non-countries sitting together around the same table, kind of discussing with each other how they were doing. That was focused on adaptation, specifically. Um, about, but also I was doing things around um, launching some reports to we'd done, tracking the progress made by some of these um, non state actor initiatives. Um, I was trying to convene meetings around some of the next steps for the for the net zero integrity agenda. Um, I was uh, being a, a panelist on a number of other people's events, um, and also just connecting with a lot of people who are working on this issue who are all in the same time and place in, um, in these very uh, strange temporary buildings, trying to think about how they can make some progress on this question.
0: And we see an, an always increasing participation of civil society on, uh, on the climate change, uh, on the way we're, we're trying to tackle climate change uh, with both people acting as consumers or as organized civil society. Could you comment a little bit on the, the importance of uh, civil society organizations and people as, as individuals during COP and also after COP uh, on pre- pressing for more immediate and concrete action? So I think civil society
1: plays a critical role. Um, A lot of civil society groups go there um, to kind of monitor the negotiations and seek to influence them. Um, I think it's really important to understand, though, that most of the substantive influence happens way before the COP starts. It happens in the national capitals. It happens when governments sit down and decide what their positions are going to be on climate policies more broadly. And that's where I think civil society has a real important role to play and where it's quite fragmented, right? quite variable country to country and how influential that can be. When you get to the COP, a lot of that's already been decided. So there is a role for civil society to be there and provide this kind of transparency and a little bit of an influence voice, but a lot of the big decisions have already been made. So it's not that useful a venue for that um, kind of activity. But COP has also now become this major global media moment. right? So if you want to... Use civil society as a tool to demand accountability or to raise new issues. For example, the loss and damage issue has really been pushed by civil society. Um, You want to get them onto the agenda. You want to create some noise around them. COP is a very good platform for doing that. So lots of different motivations, I think, for civil society to be there.
0: We make this podcast uh, with policymakers in mind, uh, especially people who are preparing to be leaders in the future. What advice would you give for those who uh, really want to engage in the fight against climate change um, and also the mitigation and adaptation um, um, platforms? How can they be more engaged, more informed, and influence more uh, the the global leaders in in shaping this debate? So the first
1: thing I would say is that if you're thinking about becoming a policymaker in the climate change space, you're in in making a really good choice because it's a massive growth industry. Every government I speak to, every NGO, every company, every university indeed is all thinking, how can we get more people who know about climate change? Because they all have to deal with it and there aren't just enough people with enough knowledge and expertise on the issue to help them do so. So there's a huge kind of human resources constraint. So if you're thinking about going to this area, it's a very good uh, career idea. And if you're not thinking about it, um, I would say, actually you're going to be in this world, because climate change is not like a topic that you can like choose to engage with or not choose to engage with, like some other policy areas might be. It's actually a structural condition that now affects the world that we are going to live in for the rest of our lives. And so it's something that's going to permeate and already does permeate every single other area of climate change, uh, sorry, of policymaking. So if you want to be a policymaker in the 21st century, you have to really understand how the changes in the fundamental systems that shape human society are, are shifting. It doesn't mean you have to be an expert, but it means you have to know quite a bit. Um, and I think that's really an, an interesting challenge for for policy schools like ours and for policymakers
0: uh, going forward. Brilliant. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the future now. So one week before the event, the UN uh, EP. The United Nations Environment Programme released a report stating that there was no credible pathway to limiting global temperature increase by 1.5 degrees. And this is a very um, not a very hopeful message. Could you comment a little bit on that and uh, whether you agree with this or not, if this makes you particularly um, um, concerned about the, the future going forward? So so two things to say on that. First, um, I think a lot of the
1: media coverage of the report framed it as the UN UN says there's no way we can get to 1.5, and that's not actually what the report says. It says the current pledges do not yet give a credible pathway. So it means we need to do more. And the good news is that if we do more, we can actually achieve that goal. Right? It's within our power to do that. It's very, very hard for us to do that, but it's within our power. I think that's a really important message because um, if A lot of the media coverage sort of said it's it's too late, you know, done. And I don't think that's at all what the report was saying. Second thing I would say is that every single fraction of a degree matters. You know, climate change, imagine your hand, hold up your hand in front of your face. Imagine a world of five degrees. Like, all of this would be a really horrible thing if you lost all five of your fingers, right? But imagine if you lost four of them. Like, that'd be pretty bad, too. Losing three, that'd be, you know, bad but a little bit better. And losing... Two, yeah, not great, but you know, much better than having the other one before. Losing one and a half would be, you know, ideal, and that's what climate change is like. So we're already in a world where we've lost at least one. Like that's the truth. That's reality. We
0: need to face that, but it's really worth fighting for every single fraction more. And if you could list one or two things that we uh, that are the most uh, our highest priority to overcome some of the uh, to not be gridlocked. Um, And to actually progress towards this more aggressive goals to uh, go beyond the the, uh, prevention of 1.5 degrees, what would be the two top priorities Mm. for the world right now? So I'll say um, two that I'm thinking about a lot. One, that
1: and both were very much on the agenda at COP27, actually. So one is about realigning the global economic governance institutions to climate goals and to sustainability goals. And we're actually seeing a lot of interesting movement on this. So at COP27, one of the best speeches, I think actually the best speech, was given by Prime Minister Mia Motley of Barbados, where she reinforced this vision she's been laying out for a while now on uh, using the full power, the full financial firepower of the IMF through its SDRs to help to basically take away some of the debt obligations that developing countries face that limit them from making the investments they need to make in resilience to have less debt going forward. So it's a really, um, I think, bold and ambitious and and, uh, interesting proposal that's been gaining some traction. One example, um, we're we're in the Future of Climate Cooperation Project here at the Blavine School um, working uh, along with some of uh, the Barbadian team to develop um, kind of what that might look like in the trade space, for example. So we're trying to think about how the whole global economic system um, becomes aligned to these, these goals, which is ultimately what we need to do. Secondly, on the net zero integrity question, we saw yeah a lot of new systems and standards coming out um, at the COP. And this is about not just making sort of net zero a kind of pledge that a company does to look good as in its CSR report or to um, have a nice thing on its website, but actually making this grounds full of voluntary commitments part of the ground rules for the economy overall. So shifting again from a kind of leadership voluntary thing to a more mandatory regulatory thing. And we're seeing that happen very quickly, actually. This is where um, the set of standards we've been setting in the UN committee are flowing into international standards. At COP, the International Organization for Standardization, which is one of the... um, is the main global sort of standard-setting body, has announced this in uh, Net Zero Guidelines. That's another project that we initiated here in the Vodnik School, and i working with them closely to, to take forward. So yeah, I'm very excited by these kind of broader shifts in way beyond the UN space, but with a you know, link to the goals set in the UN space that are beginning to make climate change um, not just a kind of thing that sits over there on the side, but actually a mainstream organizing principle for how we think about structuring the
0: economy, structuring policymaking, structuring our goals going forward amazing uh, now on a more personal note I, I am from Brazil mm-hmm. and we just had elections and I know that Brazil at different points in time has played an important part um, in in the environmental agenda and uh, for the past few years we have been on a on a different let's say path um what do you think what, what do you think is the relevance of this change in government in Brazil and uh, its implications for global government and the fight against climate change? Well, I have to say that when Lula walked into the cop, it was like I don't know some sort of rock
1: star coming into the arena to perform, people went crazy. They thought it was really um, you know a great a great step forward um, to see the Brazilian government and Lula's words were very strong on this really strongly commit to ending deforestation in the Amazon. And redoubling its efforts on global climate goals and you know that's essential there's no way there's no path to the goals in the paris agreement without um seriously addressing the world's natural systems and a good chunk of those will be very much influenced by the government of brazil's choices so this is a a big change Um, it's going to take a lot of work Uh, there's a lot of need to think about systems that uh, create the right incentives for people who live in the amazon to benefit from preserving the, the system and actually uh, valuing the, sy- the amazing resources that they provide to the whole world. And that's gonna be complicated, um, but it, that's where the work needs to go now. And having political leadership pushing that direction is gonna be a big boost.
0: Professor hey, we're coming now to, at, to the end uh, of the podcast. Would you like to leave um, a comment or a, pos- a hopeful note for our listeners? Yeah, let me just come back to what I was saying a little bit before about, you know, should I focus on climate change
1: or should I not? And do I do I need to know about it? So I think, you know, even if you're not going to focus on climate change, you do need to know a little bit about it because it's shaping everything we do. But I actually think that doing a generalist degree, like a master's in public policy, is a really good way to make progress on climate change specifically. Why? Because we need to transform the whole system, right? It's not about getting more scientists doing um, more climate science, that's good and important. It's not about getting more engineers inventing new kind of technologies, that's good, that's important. It's not just about economists telling us what's efficient or what, how do we kind of get the right incentive structure, that's also good and important. It's about bringing all these different pieces together into a whole suite of policies that come across every single aspect of what governments do. So actually being a journalist, uh, and a good journalist an ability to use your journalist skills to change many different parts of government in the direction of travel, that we know we need to go in is going to be exactly what the climate needs.
0: So think about the MPP. Thank you so much. It was a brilliant uh, contribution to our podcast. We were really happy to have you here. Thanks for having me.